Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23 this morning. Serious, serious passage of Scripture. I tremble when I open my Bible to this. I tremble as I ask you to turn to Matthew seven twenty-one through 23. We live in an age of cultural Christianity. Oh, do we ever. Most Americans claim to be Christian. I did some research this last week. ABC News did a poll this summer in July, and 83% of Americans claim to be Christian. Sometime before that, the Gallup group did a poll. Their number was 77%. Pew Research also did a poll within the last 12 months, and their findings were that 78% of Americans claim to be Christians. Do our laws reflect this? You just look at the legislative docket that we have processed in the last several years. Do our laws reflect an 83% Christian nation? In 1973, Roe versus Wade legalized abortion. So in 1973, from that point on, abortion is legal. In fact, murder is legalized while we have something called a blue law. And there's things that we are prohibited from buying on Sundays. I remember as a child on a Sunday riding my bicycle to a 7-Eleven to get a 9-volt battery to charge my electronic football game. And I couldn't buy a battery because it was Sunday. Yet, we could abort These surveys show that Americans claim to be Christians because they go to church at some point or another. They think well of that guy called Jesus. You've got a Bible in the house. They're not atheists. They're not Muslims. They're not Buddhists. So we've got to be something. And I don't want to be that other category or none. I, so I'm going to check Christian. Yeah, there's a frightening abundance of Christian nationalism. The belief that I'm an American and therefore I'm a Christian. Thomas Jefferson struggled with this. Jefferson had his own Bible. He believed that Jesus truly existed. He believed that Jesus was a good man. He was indeed a prophet. Indeed, he believed that Jesus Christ was crucified on a cross. But he didn't believe that Jesus Christ was Emmanuel, God with us. He didn't believe in Jesus' miracles. He disdained them. And he especially didn't believe in the resurrection. He said, no way was there a resurrection Thomas Jefferson's Jesus is still dead. If that's true, we're meeting in vain here this morning. So he literally took his Bible and he cut out of it the pages that had miracle references. And his Bible that he made that's sitting in the Smithsonian Institution today is void of even resurrection language. And I'm telling you that that is not Christianity. It is not. 
And I want you to test yourself this morning because you may be sitting out there saying, how dare he talk about Thomas Jefferson like that? Founding father, writer of the Declaration of Independence. How dare he talk about that founding father like that? Or you might be saying, how dare Thomas Jefferson treat our Bible like that? Which response do you have when I share this story with you? It's a test. We are not Christians because we are Americans. We're Christians because we have been saved by the resurrected Jesus Christ. So Jesus is warning us this morning about this issue. Christianity cannot be something of our culture that we embrace. It's something bigger than that. And here's what he says. Here's how he warns us. Look with me, 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, depart from me. I never knew you, you worker of lawlessness. Staggering words. Words that we must hear and we must understand and we must apply to our lives right now in these next few moments. You have to take these words with you outside of this room and into that world that you're going to go into and into that life that you're going to go live, sometimes that secret life that you're going to go live, you have to take this passage with you. Jesus says here that words without weight will not get you anything good. Mere verbal professions do not make a Christian. And Jesus is warning you and me in this passage about self-deception. Do not be deceived. Words do not get it done. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Christianity is evidenced in doing the will of the Father. The Sermon on the Mount is not a museum piece. The Bible is not an artifact that we need to stick somewhere and admire it. This is a living word, the revelation of God, and we must embrace this, hold fast to it, and apply it to our lives and not waver. And when we do, because we will, we repent. We ask for forgiveness from the Father, and we walk away from those sinful ways that the Bible has shown us in our lives. No, it's not to be admired, it's not to be discussed, it's not to be praised, it's not to be debated. It is to be practiced and obeyed and lived. It's not to be theologically analyzed. It's not to be applauded for its high ethical moral standards or its creative genius and how it was put together. It's to be believed and obeyed and applied and lived. And furthermore... Let's cut this thing down to where it really starts to hurt a little bit. We are not to be selectively obedient to this. Because selective obedience is no obedience at all. 
We are to submit to the Word of God. And if we really believe that Jesus is Lord, and if we really believe that He inspired this whole Bible, then we will conform our lives to His commands and His teachings. But if we believe in one degree or another that we are Lord, and that we determine right and wrong, then we will conform this to our lives. And one day we'll say, Lord, Lord, and he will tell us to depart. Consider what James was inspired to write. I got, I got to tell you for a moment, I am trembling. I never tremble when I preach. I, I am shaking right now. You don't know that. This is a serious, serious word for us this morning. James says, in James 1, just listen to this. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Whoever says to me, Lord, Lord, it's not a guarantee that you're entering. It's the one that does the will of my Father who is in heaven that enters. The Bible is full of examples of this. This last week I've taught children in our school here about Abraham and Isaac. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. God promised Abraham many nations would come from him. He promised him a son. And then he says, here's this son, Isaac. Now I need you to go sacrifice him. What did Abraham do? He gathered some wood. And he went on a long march, three days journey into the wilderness. And he put his son on an altar that he built. And he laid the wood upon there and set his son on top of that raised the knife, and the Lord stopped him and said, Now I know. She's not just wanting to say, Lord, Lord, to me, you're doing my will. And my will is not that you would take the life of your son. My will is to test your faith. And I'm going to provide a ram. Noah. Taught the kids about Noah two weeks ago. Noah's told, taught the men Wednesday night about Noah. Noah was told, hey, go build you a gigantic boat, a boat that's never existed before, no blueprints, just here's how you go do it. 450 feet long, 40-something, 50-something feet high. Noah didn't say, I, I don't think so, that didn't fit my plans. That didn't conform to my idea of what I should do with my life. Noah built him a boat. And by doing the will of the Father, Noah was delivered through troubled waters, through judgment, and he received mercy. Because, yes, he professed, Lord, Lord, and he followed it up with doing the Lord's will. That's who we have to be. That's why those stories are in the Bible for us. What has God commanded you to do? He's not asked you to sacrifice your only son. He's not asked us to do that. In fact, he ultimately did that for us with his own son. He's not asked you to do that. But he's told you to not be angry with your brother because it's murderous. He's told you to love your enemy and to pray for your persecutor. He's told you to turn the other cheek when you're slapped on the right one. 
He's not asked you to build an ark. But he's asked you to tear out a knife that causes you to sin. He's asked you to stay married to that spouse. He's asked you to not swear falsely. Will you do the will of the Father who is in heaven? That's the question that's before us. Mere words will not get it done. Lord, Lord is not enough. It's the beginning. And from Lord, Lord, we then do what God calls us to do. But look at this. Jesus has told us words without weight will not get it done. But he also tells us that actions without weight will not get it done. Look at this. Verse 22, on that day, many will declare to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? No man enters the kingdom of heaven because of his obedience. Let's get that very real. Okay? You do not get into heaven because of your obedience. But it is equally true that no one who is disobedient will get into heaven. You see this? Obedience doesn't get us there. It takes faith, not works. But if we don't follow in obedience, we won't get there either. They have to be together, faith and works. And look at this profession that's made. He said this now twice in this passage. Lord, Lord. This seems like a good thing for people to be saying, doesn't it? I mean, after all, first of all, it's reverent. It's acknowledging Jesus for who he is, and he is Lord. So it's reverent. Secondly, it's biblical. I hear Romans 10, 9 in this. Everyone who professes with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raises him from the dead will be saved. So we're professing Lord here. That sounds like Romans 10, 9. It's fervent. It's said twice, Lord, Lord. So it's meant. It's, it's from a, a belief in something. It's even public. We've prophesied in your name. We've cast out demons in your name. We've done many mighty works. It's a public demonstration of Lord, Lord. Sounds good, looks good. But there is, according to what Jesus has said here, a lack of genuineness. And I would venture to say perhaps it's just Christian speak. I don't know, but it sounds like Christianese. You know, we can run around saying hallelujah all the time, so many times that hallelujah means nothing to us three years from now. Or amen, brother, amen, brother, and five years from now, those are just token little words that we throw around, and they really don't mean what they mean. No, actions are not of supreme importance. You know, look at the actions that Jesus lists here. There is a deep, deep craving in our culture for the supernatural. Casting out of demons. Many mighty works, prophecies, but they carry no weight in and of themselves. They carry no weight in and of themselves. These things don't save people. This is not a new phenomenon. I want you to turn over to Matthew 12, just two or three pages over in your Bible. Look at Matthew 12, 38. Jesus dealt with this in his day. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, him is Jesus, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Here we go. We want signs. You're not enough, Jesus. We need a sign. 
But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. People, we have already received the most ultimate sign ever fathomed. And that sign is the sign of Jonah. And that sign of Jonah is the resurrection of Jesus Christ on the third day from the dead. We must not be a people craving for signs, demons casts out, prophecies, many mighty works. We've got the ultimate in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Today is in Jesus' day. We are obsessed with signs. Uh, We're obsessed with healing. You just turn on... Christian television, and we are obsessed with signs and healing on TV. We're just obsessed. We're invited at the end of these healing sessions to call the 800 number with our credit card. I remember I saw a church bulletin years ago that said the healing room, it was at Christmas, the healing room will be closed between Christmas and New Year's. (laughs) Really? If if we've got that ability and we're doing it, why would we ever shut that thing down? And why is it in a room? Why aren't we at the hospitals? We're looking for signs. We want the supernatural. And we're totally overlooking the most incredible supernatural thing that ever happened. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Without which we have no hope. Tongues. I've, I've seen... Time after time, people having individuals come down to the front and they have this pep rally urging them to speak in tongues. If you can just speak in tongues, you'll be real. No, you've got to believe in a resurrection to be real. Prophecy. That guy told me everything that was deep down, secret, hidden within me. There's no way anybody knows that. He told me, okay, great. But what does that have to do with the resurrection? What does that have to do with Jesus Christ? You're wowed at that man that he could tell you all those things. What did it do to point you to Jesus Christ, the sign of Jonah? Yeah, we, we crave signs and experiences and emotions. And I'm not saying those are bad in and of themselves, but when we want those separate from being satisfied with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we're in trouble. We're saying, Lord, Lord. And we could hear a response that would shudder us, shatter us. Such signs that I've just mentioned can actually call our attention away from Jesus and His supremacy of His resurrection. Just because someone does such works does not mean that the Lord is behind it does not mean that the Lord is behind it. The Bible is full of warnings about people that are performing mighty works separate from His will. How about Judas Iscariot? 
Did he not do many mighty works in the name of Jesus before he betrayed him? Here's what Jesus says in Matthew 24, 24. He warns us that false Christs, lower C, Christs, and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. So we're warned by Christ that all these signs that we're craving could be done by antichrists, false Christs, false prophets. And they ultimately lead us away from the resurrection, the sign of all signs. So mere religious acts do not make a Christian. I give you Jesus again, Matthew 15, 6 through 9. Jesus condemns these religious acts. He says, so for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips. Lord, Lord, hear it. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. We need to be embracing the commandments of God in Him alone. And we need to be embracing the signs of God in God alone. You know, some people read the Bible and they pick and choose what they want to believe. Much like our founding father, one of our founding fathers did. We have people that have experiences of miraculous healings. They've cast out demons or had demons cast out of them. They claim to have the gift of tongues and healing. And yet, what do they do? They defy Christ in the way they live their life. And it looks nothing like what we've just heard in the Sermon on the Mount over these last many weeks. There's no gouging out of eyes. There's no turning the other cheek. There's no praying for persecutors in these people. And yet they've had all these experiences and they're running around saying, Lord, Lord. And Jesus says, I want you to say, Lord, Lord, and I want you to do what I as Lord have said. Some may not get the scissors out and mutilate their Bibles. But they have treated the Bible as a mere religious scrapbook. And there's people that go through and say, oh, Jesus, yeah, I... I I'm not going to do that one, but I'll do this one. I'll, I'll do these over here, but that one, you can't expect me to do that, Jesus. And, oh, oh, Paul. Well, Paul, Jesus never said that, and this is black ink. Jesus over here is in red ink, so if it's black ink, I'm not going to do it. No. We cannot go to the Bible like this. We cannot. Because then we will say, Lord, Lord, but we will not do the will of the Father who is in heaven, because His will is right here. So I want to show you this morning in, 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 in a brief way the marks of a true Christian and what a relationship with Christ, how, how we get this. Because in verse 23, Jesus says, and then will I declare to them, I never knew you. So we have to be known by Christ. We don't have to know about Christ. We have to be known by Him. We have to be in a relationship with Him. And so we get passages like this out of John 10. Jesus says, But he who enters by the door of the shepherd of the sheep is the true shepherd. 
To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. I am the good shepherd and listen to this. I know my own. Jesus just said, depart from me, I never knew you over here. But in John, he says, I know my own and my own know me. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. If Christianity for you is knowing about Jesus, you're in a perilous position. Because your Christianity must be defined by the fact that Jesus knows you rightly. So how do we have this relationship with Christ? We listen for his voice. That's what this passage in John says. We know his voice. His voice is found right here. It is so clear too. His voice is abundantly available to us. I've got pages upon pages and chapters and verses. It's his voice. (laughs) What a good God that he would make his voice hearable for us. Christians are therefore readers. You want to know the voice of Christ? You want Christ to say, I know you? Then you as a Christian are a reader of the book that contains his voice. You're a reader. And you're a reader, you're a a student. So you apply yourself to your reading. You're diligent. You feast on the word of God. And then you flip it and you apply the Word of God to your life. And where it doesn't match up, you go change your life to conform with the voice of Christ in the Word of God. So Christians read and study not with the goal of knowledge. We don't want to know about Him. But we read and we study for the purpose of a relationship. So that He can say, I know my own and my own know me. We want a relationship with the author. And so we're in here often, tenaciously, thumbing the pages, looking for the voice of God and applying it to our lives. Is this you? Is this your approach to the Scriptures? Do you understand that this is your ticket to knowing the Savior of the world that rose on the third day? I pray that you... Hold this Bible with that kind of reverence and that kind of desperation. Look what happens here. This is a a frightening passage here. Here's where it gets really, really scary. Because Jesus says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. That's horrifying in and of itself. That alone, to have the God, the creator of all things say, I never knew you, is horrifying. And then he follows it with this. Depart from me. You worker of lawlessness. Lord, Lord, you're a worker of lawlessness. Get away from me. There's a day that the Bible speaks about often. The Bible is not shy to tell us about a day 
that's coming in the future. It's a promised day. It's a guaranteed day. We've been promised a bunch of days throughout all of the Bible. We were promised about one that would be born in Bethlehem of a virgin, and it happened. We were promised of one that was going to venture off to Egypt so that his child wouldn't be killed, and it happened. We were promised about one who was going to come and hang on a cross and be a substitute, and it happened. We were promised in the book of Jonah of one that would rise from the dead on the third day, and it happened. And we are promised of a day when this risen Savior who ascended to the right hand of God is coming again. It's the one promise the church is waiting for. It's the one last promise that we are waiting for to be fulfilled. And we have all this evidence and all this testimony of all these other promised days and events. And they've all been yes. Why would we believe that this one will be no? Our God is faithful to every one of his promises and every one of them is fulfilled in Christ. And this day is the day that Jesus Christ returns from the dead. And on that day, we're told throughout Scripture that He is going to gather those that say, Lord, Lord, and do the will of the Father, because they are His and He knows them and He's going to gather them, and we will reside with Him for all of eternity. Because you and I are made to exist forever. And those that do not profess with their mouth and believe in their heart, and those that defy God's commands, He's going to judge and that judgment ends with, depart from me, you're a worker of lawlessness, not the will of my Father. And these people that that will be said to, there will be many, it says, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. There will be many that will be stunned that they're not embraced by Christ and they won't reside with Christ forever in heaven. They will be shocked. And I have prayed all week that whoever hears this sermon would not be one of those. Does he know you? Yeah, this is a real day. We're told this day is going to come like a thief in the night. Hey, I urge you. Read Matthew on your own this afternoon. Read Matthew 25, 31 through 46. Write that in your margin next to this passage in Matthew 7. Matthew 25, 31 through 46. You need to read that. But there's a day coming. Philippians 2, 9 through 11 tells this. God highly exalts Jesus and bestows on him a name that's above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And listen to this. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You hear that? Lord, Lord. Every tongue is going to confess Lord, Lord one day. Everyone. But the question is, what will the Lord's response to that profession be? Well done, good and faithful servant. You are one of mine, I know you, come here, or depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. But every knee will bow and every tongue will confess at one point, wow, Jesus Christ, he is Lord.
Some will say this, and Jesus will tell them to depart. In Luke, the Sermon on the Mount passages that flip over into Luke, listen to this. There's one extra line in there that Luke was inspired to write. Luke says in Luke 13, 27 and 28, But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, you workers of evil. And then it says this, In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's about hell. When Jesus says, depart from me, the destination is hell. So this ought to trigger in your mind some passages that we've heard in the last couple of weeks. Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is easy, that leads to destruction, and there are many who find it. Many will profess to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Many go through the wide gate that leads to destruction. And destruction is the place where Jesus, when he says, depart from me, that's the place where people go for all of eternity. Matthew seven nineteen through 20. Last week, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits, by what they do, by doing the will of my Father in heaven after they've professed, Lord, Lord. So to make some application here, how does a person know if they are deceived now? Because it's too late if we say, Lord, Lord, and then learn that we've been deceived all of our life. It's too late at that point. How today, now, can we understand whether or not we are deceived? And I just came up with a list of a few things that would be warning signs. I'm not saying these are ultimate indicators, but these are warning signs flashing Yellow lights. (laughs) And one is that some people have what I call an insured mentality. I've got insurance against that stuff. After all, when I was a baby, I got dedicated right before my church family. So I'm good to go. I was baptized as an infant. My mom and dad took care of that for me. I'm good to go. I come from a long line of Christian believers. My great-grandfather came over on the boat, and he brought Christianity with his family to America, and it's stayed in my family ever since. I'm good to go. If we explain our salvation by things like that, we have to stop and say, whoa, 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 whoa. Does Christ know me? Because those are hollow. They may be true. They may be true. I come from a Christian heritage, but I don't hang my salvation on that. How about this one? There's an emphasis on activity. When someone asks someone else, are you saved? And they answer and justify it by telling you about what they do. Then that person needs to worry. I read my Bible every day. Got it sitting right there. Got a checklist and I check it off every day. Seven days a week. Good to go. No. Because you can read your Bible and you can say, Lord, Lord, and you cannot do what this Bible says, and he will tell you to depart. I'm at church every time the doors are open. I teach fourth grade Sunday school. I'm a deacon. I've been a deacon for 23 years. Good to go. 
I have not yet heard about a cross and a resurrection and a confession of sin. I, I, I'm hearing about things people do. Preachers fall into this. I preach four times a week and teach three, three times a week to children in a school. Seven times a week I'm opening the Bible and teaching people. I'm good to go. Led 178 people to Christ last year. Baptized four of them. Baseball card statistics. Those don't save pastors. Busy, busy, busy. If you define your Christianity by what you do and not what you profess, you better take inventory. There are those that are so driven by their denomination or their church that they promote it as if it was a brand. And if you talk more about your denomination or more about your church than about your risen Savior, you better stop and take some inventory. There's an academic approach that can be taken to theology. We admire the Bible and the truths of the Christian faith more than the object of our faith, and Christ is our object of faith. So we believe in soteriology and eschatology and teleology and deontology and all these ologies. And we can talk about all these ologies all day long, but hey, where is Christ in his substitution for you and his resurrection from the dead and his certain coming again? There are many that, that are puffed up about their, their economy with the Greek and the Hebrew original languages, and they can spout Greek and Hebrew to you all day long, but there is a Christless Christianity that's in that sometimes. I, I know of many that will fight you tooth and toenail over which translation is the one you ought to have. And I'm telling you right now, you better have the ESV. You better have the NIV. It's the real man's Bible. There's those that say that Paul wrote the King James Version himself. You cannot be defining yourself on what translation of the Bible you believe in. There's also a non-academic approach to theology. There's no need to study. Study schmuddy. You just be alive and real in the moment and you submit to the Lord and he'll take over you and he'll tell you things to say that you never even dreamed of. Wrong. When Jesus promised the coming of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit would only say to those disciples the things that Jesus has already said. We have to read this. We have to know this. We have to embrace this. We have to live this. We have to memorize this. So many people abuse that passage where Jesus says, in that day, don't worry about what you should say because it will come to you. It will come to you because you've read it before. And it's inside of you and it will be conjured up by the Holy Spirit. It's not some magical, mystical osmosis thing where God zaps you with a word because you've never opened the word of God. And if you do do that, you're going to be like Caiaphas who prophesied rightly that Jesus would have to die for the nation not knowing what he was prophesying. The last one, there's these single-issue Christians. You know what I'm talking about? We cannot be single-issue Christians. There's Christians that camp out on the end times, and they've got everything figured out on how everything's going to unfold in the book of Revelation. The minute you have one person tell you, I know everything that's going to unfold in those last days, you need to turn and run. 
There's those that camp out on heaven. We talked about that last week. They're more enamored with heaven than the means to get to heaven, and that's Jesus Christ. There's those that are, that are always turning around and doing spiritual gifts inventories. They've inventoried themselves to death. Demonology. Even good causes. Abortion. You can become so enamored with the issue of abortion that Christ can evaporate out of it for you, and you're all about promoting life, which is good, but it's a Christless stance on abortion. Or adoption. Or marriage. And then there's some that have the hummingbird approach where they flip-flop from all these hot-button issues and they define their Christianity by what they know and what they understand about all these issues. And I'm not saying it's wrong to focus on these things. It's not inherently wrong to do that. We just need to remember that you will know them by their fruits. There's a stiff warning here this morning. Pretty serious sermon. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Have you sat through these last many, many weeks hearing the will of the Father and yet defying him by not doing the will of the Father? Have you sat through the last 10 years of preaching and and listening to sermons on your iPod and doing your own devotions, hearing loud and clear from God, this is my will for you, and then walking away going, yep, that's His will, but uh, meanwhile, real life's over here and I'm going to do this. That can't be you. It can't be me. And one of the reasons that we call ourselves a church is we together look at each other and say, hey, brother, sister, do the will of the Father. It's clear here in this situation how you should conduct yourself in that situation. And we need to go do it. We need to encourage one another to do the will of the Father, not merely know about the will of the Father. So this morning I conclude with this. I want you to ask yourself this question. Do you know Christ? Do you know Him? Do you know His voice? And when you hear His voice, do you respond to it and follow Him? Or do you just know about Christ in certain surface levels? Ultimately, the question every one of us has to ask is, does Jesus know me? This is the most important question any human being could ever ask and get the answer to. It's more important than anything that's troubling you right now that you want to know the answer to. This is it. Your finances do not matter compared to this. Are you going to get married? Are you going to be able to conceive children? That does not matter compared to this. Does Jesus Christ know you? And I want to invite you this morning, if you are uncertain about that answer, there are many here that can answer that question by pointing you in the Bible. We, we can't tell you, but we can show you where the voice is and spend time with you. I would love to meet with you week in and week out. There are plenty here that can point you to Christ and His voice and the Word. And I would say to you this morning, act on that. You must be certain 
Because we don't know when this day that's been promised is coming. And what a tragedy for you to think you're right with Christ when he says, depart. It's very quiet in here. I, I pray you're scouring your heart and your soul and looking for evidence here. I hope you're taking these words seriously from Christ. And I hope you'll take me up on an invitation to talk about this more. Or to find that one in this room that you could talk about this more. So let's pray.